First John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever... whoever, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness And walks in the darkness as he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing this to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, Because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son as the Father. Whoever confesses the Son as the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, 
then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider even a portion of this chapter of this letter that John wrote to the churches in the first century, as he provided tests of true faith, as he said and described for them what a true believer looks like, we pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and hearts, that he would give us understanding Bring us to repentance where we need to repent. Cause us to turn from false profession if there there are any here who are falsely professing faith. Bring salvation to those who don't know you. Help us to understand what John as an apostle and as a pastor in your church is doing as he speaks in such stark terms of light and darkness truth, and lies. Help us to understand your word and rejoice in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The vast majority of Christians, or excuse me, the ma- let me take that back. The vast majority of Americans profess to be Christians. They say they love God. They say they believe in Jesus. In fact, being a professing Christian is part of the fabric of American culture and has long been part of the fabric of American culture. And this is quickly changing. I don't know if you're aware of this, but a recent study just showed that well over 50% of American voters trust the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community, while only about 40% of American voters trust evangelical Christians. In other words, Christianity is increasingly becoming marginalized in America. Further, churches are dying and shrinking all over the U.S. faster than they're growing and being planted. We're actually seeing thousands of churches on average close each year. This is a sad reality. And while it's a reality that is foreign to us, It is not a foreign reality for Christians throughout history. As a result of all this, new studies are declaring that Christianity is dying in America. Have you seen these? These various pollsters warn that Christians should take note that they're being eclipsed by the sexual revolution. In fact, the way the media now frames it is that our old and archaic And sexually repressive fairy tale is dying in America. And we should join the enlightenment of the pagan Illuminati and embrace embrace our true self and our sexual freedom. Or face the coming consequences for our clearly outdated and hateful bigotry. And I've seen professing Christians search around in fear, trying somehow to find shelter from the destructive forces of these cultural winds. I've seen professing Christians scrambling around trying to find new ways to accommodate the shift the 
shifting cultural landscape so as to stop the bleeding of people from their churches. They opine that we must turn things around so we can become Christian as a nation once again. And I think this all begs a question, doesn't it? One of the questions that it begs is, what is a Christian? Was America ever Christian? How do I know if I'm a Christian? Is Christianity really shrinking in America? Or are false professors of Christianity just taking off their sheep costumes and showing off their goat's horns? See, let me submit to you that I do not believe that true Christianity is shrinking in America. I think cultural Christianity is dying in America, and I think that that, the fact that cultural Christianity is dying in America has tragic consequences for our culture and our nation, but I do not think that it has any consequences for the salvation of God's people. Jesus clearly told us that he will build his church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And folks, the turning tides of American culture will not prevail against the growth of Jesus' church either. In fact, one good consequence of this cultural revolution is that true Christians are becoming increasingly increasingly easy to identify. Now there have always been and always will be pretenders until Jesus' return. But it is quickly becoming more clear in the U.S. who is who, isn't it? Well, John is dealing, so you know, with a similar problem of false professors in the church who are now departing the church and trying to bring others along in the first century, the late part of the first century. They have a different Jesus, a different father, and thus a different understanding of man and sin and salvation. And John begins his epistle... By pointing out two pivotal realities with regard, regarding Jesus. One, Jesus is the historical and physical manifestation of the eternal Son of God. And two, Jesus is revealing the character of the Father who is light. And as we'll see in chapter 4, who is love. Thus God's holy, pure, life-giving character is revealed historically and physically in his Son, Jesus, and John is driving after that, and then he's saying, if that's true, what are the implications of all that for the church? And he's laying those out. These truths impact how we see ourselves, how we see our salvation, and how we see the Christian life. We cannot claim to be in fellowship with the God who is light while we walk in the darkness. We cannot deny that we are sinners by nature and by choice while claiming to believe in a holy God. And once we have eyes to see who Jesus reveals God to be, and we admit the truth about ourselves, and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and Jesus, then and only then will we be saved and cleansed from our sin. Then Christ will be our propitiation, i.e. our wrath bearer, and our advocate with the Father. But here is the question that remains. How do I know if I have Jesus as my own? See, how do I know if I am, in fact, united to Jesus through faith? How do I know if I am a true Christian and thus saved? Now, as we go through these passages the next several weeks where John lays out tests of true faith, 
I want you to resist the compulsion to think about who these apply to and prove they're not Christians. I don't want you to sit there and think, yeah, my wife really needs to hear this right now. My husband, you know what, my sister, my family member, okay, this guy at work, that is not what I, I want you to resist that compulsion, and I want you to think about the word being applied to your own heart and mind, your own life. How do I know if I'm a true Christian thus saved? Where can I find assurance that I'm a believer in the Jesus whom the apostles knew and who reveals the true God? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at tests of true faith, or, or maybe what I want to call heart checks. Going to get a checkup on your heart spiritually. So here's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to look at the first test of true faith in 1 John 2. I was going to do the first two tests of faith, and then I realized it was a way too long of a sermon. So we're just going to do the first test. First test of true faith in 1 John 2. And we will look at one way that you can know that you are a believer in Jesus and not just a false professor of faith. So today we're going to consider what I call our first heart check. And here's what it is. It's a vertical heart check. What do I mean by that? By a vertical heart check, I mean we're going to look at a test to see if your heart is directed toward God. Is your heart, in fact, directed toward God? And John gives us a test for that, as does Jesus, which we'll look at. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. And I want you to notice the repeated emphasis here. By thi- and by this, we know that we have come to know him. So how do you know that you know him? And by this, we know that we have come to know him. Look down at verse 5. The last phrase. By this... We know that we are in him. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him. You guys, you guys hear these phrases? Notice this relational language. We know him. If you look at even at verse 5. That in him truly the love of God is perfected. We love him. We are in him. We're united to him. We abide in him. The whole text is driving at, to us, us to a central re, uh, reality. How do you know that you're in a real relationship with Jesus? How do you know that you know him? How do you know that you love him? How do you know that you abide in him? How do you know that you're united to him? How do you know? And it's important because our faith in Christ is not merely an intellectual agreement with a set of doctrinal truths. Please hear me. When we talk about faith in Christianity or belief in Christianity, we don't mean I agree this set of propositions is true. James deals with that quite clearly. Satan believes those sets of propositions are true. So what if you believe that set of God is the creator and there's only one. He is revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who he is as Three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus saved us through his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand, his sending of the Holy Spirit. I can go through all, the Bible is the word of God. I go through all those things and Satan will go, yep, yep. He's probably a better theologian than most of us. In fact, I would say he's, 
maybe the most adept theologian around because he knows how to take just a, just a little tiny turn on a truth and confuse you. So our faith in Christ is not an intellectual agreement with a set of doctrinal truths. Our faith in Christ, not only, maybe I should say that. Our faith in Christ is an intimate relationship with God through the person of Jesus. It is a relationship in which we know him and love him and are united to him and we abide in him. That's the kind of intimate language John is using here you find in marriage. Adam didn't just know some facts about Eve. Adam became one with Eve. He knew his wife. He loved his wife. I don't just know facts about my wife, Teresa. I know her. I'm related to her. She isn't just a distant idea that I can describe accurately. She is a person whom I know and love and whom I'm united to. Likewise, God in the person of Jesus is not just a system of doctrine you ascribe to. A system of doctrine did not die on the cross for you. You know him, and you love him, and you're united to him, and you remain in him personally and relationally. Perhaps the best and simplest way to speak of this is, is to say that if you have true faith, then you love Jesus. You don't just love truths about him or no doctrinal propositions about him. You love him and you know him. So here comes the next question. How do I know if this is true of me? How do I know this is true of me? Not just that I know and agree to a set of propositions, but that I actually know the God whom those propositions describe. Actually know the Savior whom those doctrinal truths are telling me about. How do I know if I know him? How do I know I know him and love him and and I'm united to him? Because see, sometimes I don't feel like I know him. Sometimes I don't feel like I love him. Sometimes I feel quite distant from him. Sometimes I wonder if I have ever known him at all. So how do I know that I love him? Well, John tells us, Look at verse 3 and 4. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If. Look at the conditional clause there. Here's how. Here's the this. If we keep his commandments. If we're keepers of his commandments, and verse 4 goes on to reemphasize that, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So how do I know if I love him? If I keep his commandments. We are keepers of his commands. We're committed to doing what he commands. All of his commandments, not just the commandments we find convenient and helpful to us at a particular time, but all of them. All the time. All ten commandments, plus these things where Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, the great commission. Keep them all. If we keep his commandments. Now, when John says that, I I don't want to take any sting away from this, but John speaks in very stark, contrasting terms. Light, 
dark, good, evil, truth, liar. Follow? Commandment keeper, commandment breaker, unbeliever. That's it. Those are the categories he speaks with. That's why I like him. Because I relate to this guy. I read Paul and he's so well nuanced and I think, man, just come right out and say it, Paul, and offend everybody. That's okay. John does that. John is just stark. And you might say, well, well, okay, if we keep his commandments. Is that really what it means? I mean, when you look at the Greek there, does it really mean if we keep his commandments? Yes, that's a direct translation, if we keep his commandments. What's he getting at here, though? He doesn't mean, and I, I want to make this clear, he isn't talking about the idea that you know you love him if you're a perfect law keeper, because that doesn't, isn't true of anybody except Jesus. What he's talking about here is that your general pattern or direction in life is one who keeps his commandments. That's the general pattern or direction of your life. That when people look at you, they don't see someone sinless, but they see someone striving to grow in keeping God's commandments. They see someone who repents of their sin and who is constantly checking their own heart against God's word, checking their own actions against God's word, and coming more and more and more into conformity to God's commandments, reflecting his holiness more and more. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, now this is a little bit more expansive than just the commandments. The idea is our will is submitted to his will and his word. We don't get to make up our own rules or make him disappear when his ideas don't align with what makes us happy. We keep his word. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that your your love for God is now perfect in the sense that you, you are no longer tainted with sin. He's talking about this idea that the love of God is now fulfilled in you. And how can that be? Because no man ever loved God the way they should. No man ever obeyed God the way they should until Jesus came along. And then Jesus kept all of God's commands. Jesus kept all of God's will. Jesus kept all of God's word. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus loved not himself even unto death for the sake of other people. And when you believe in Jesus, then the Spirit dwells in you, the Spirit that dwelt in Christ. He dwells in you, and Jesus dwells in you. And so now your heart is changed, and you're born again and united to him. And so now you have a love like his, though it isn't sinless and perfect in the sense of without, without any kind of error or sin. It is fulfilled in you, finally. What wasn't there before is now there. You know that because you keep his word. In other words, what he's saying is your heart's been changed. And I'll get at this a little bit more in a little bit. Look at 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Your Bible app just go off. <laughs> we, we, we all know that while that, the phone was on, he has a Bible app he listens to. And so now I don't know if, whether to shame you or say that you're more pious than me. 
because you listen to the Bible on your, it's incredible. Okay, all right. So we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He obeyed the Father's will in everything. That's how he walked. God's will was his greatest priority. God's law was his great delight. He had compassion on others. He repaid evil with good. He always acted in love. He humbly served to the point of death on the cross. In other words, if you say you abide in him, then you're walking as he walked. That's the general pattern of your life. I don't know if you notice the pattern. If you know him and love him and are united to him and abide in him, this is shown by whether or not you obey him. It's shown by whether or not you follow him, whether or not you remain loyal to his will found in his word. As the famous 20th century commentator John Stott has said, true love for God, now I want you to hear this, true love for God is not, is not expressed in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. This is precisely what Jesus says. Look at John chapter 14. Keep your hand there in in 1 John, if you will, and look at John 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples during the last week of his life and teaching them about the promised Holy Spirit who's to come. He says this in John chapter 14 and verse 15. Here's the conditional clause. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you know if you love Jesus? You keep his commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who loves Jesus? The one who keeps his commandments. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. I don't have time to unwind all of this. I just want you to get to the central thing I'm pointing at. Jesus is saying over and over again, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll be obedient to my word. Chapter 15 and verse 10 of John. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I want you to be clear about this. I, I, I want you to hear this and note this well. Anyone who says that he loves God or that she loves God and does not keep God's commandments, is a liar. What you said, I love God, is a lie. That statement is a lie. It's false. It's untrue. It does not matter how much you feel that you love Jesus, or how many mystical experiences you say you've had with Jesus, or how many times you think you felt Jesus' presence. None of those are ways that Jesus identifies as tests for how you know you know him and love him. None of them. Jesus says, 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. By analogy, think of your love for another person. Think of your love for another person by analogy. You can say you love them all you want. You can have all the deep feelings and warm memories that you want. But if that is not expressed in tangible loyalty to and care for them, then it's really not love for them. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying subjective emotions or feelings are bad or unnecessary. Not saying that. In fact, I think they're good and even necessary. But they're not very reliable tests as to whether I know Jesus. What I'm saying is that all the emotions in the world, unaccompanied by actual obedience, are a farce. It's like repeatedly saying you love someone and feel strongly for that person while always doing the very things they hate and are opposed to. I love my wife, so I come home and make a huge mess in the house and curse at the children and act completely self-centeredly and spend all the money on the toys I want and don't pay any of the bills and drink excessively and go out and practice wanton behavior in the community with other women and smack them around. But I love them. I have all kinds of feelings for them. I don't really do that stuff, by the way. (laughs) Do you understand the point? You cannot say you love someone and live a pattern of life that is about being opposed to everything that would be what shows love to them. That you're, I love you, but I'm going to live my life in such a way that I demonstrate hatred to you. The same thing is true in your relationship with God. To say you love God, or you know Jesus, or you love Jesus, but to live a pattern of life doing the very things that God hates, that God is opposed, are, is opposed to, is to be a liar. It's all you are. But all this brings up another question for me, because this all sounds like I might be saved by my law-keeping. I mean, if we're not careful, some of you are going to start thinking you're saved by your law-keeping. So are we saying that law-keeping is necessary to our salvation? In other words, is law-keeping necessary to my salvation? Well, I'm, I'm going to frustrate you for a minute. I'm going to clear it up. Yes and no. Yes, law-keeping is necessary to your salvation. No, law-keeping is not necessary to your salvation. Which is it? Yes and no. Let's, let's, let's deal with that. What do I mean? Well, in one incredibly important way, law-keeping is not necessary to your salvation. Ready? Here's the no. Law-keeping is not necessary to your salvation. In, in this way, you are not justified, i.e. forgiven for your sins and declared righteous by your law-keeping. You're not. You cannot be justified by your law-keeping. As Paul says in Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many human beings will be justified by works of the law? None. Can you be justified by your law-keeping? No. Jesus is your justification. 
That's why John says what he says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, which he expects everyone will sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, he's the righteous, and he's coming alongside of us, and he's presenting us to the Father. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who bore the wrath and satisfied the wrath of God against our sins for us, and not only for us, but for the whole world. So go tell that gospel to everybody else, because they all need to hear it too. He's the only hope any of us have of justification. He's it. Jesus is your justification. Adam violated God's law. Israel violated God's law. We violate God's law. And we will never, ever be justified by law keeping. We're not even a little bit justified by law keeping. It doesn't even improve our justification with God. Justification is a free gift of grace that we receive through faith in Jesus. And even that faith is not a work that's virtuous that we do where God says, well, you, did, you couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, so I'm going to give you one easy commandment. Just believe in Jesus. Oh, you did that? Good, 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 good. Okay, I'm going to reward that. Faith itself is a gift, Paul tells us. So in this sense, we're not saved by law-keeping. Did you guys get that one? We're not saved by law-keeping in the sense that justification comes through law-keeping. It never does. However, there are two senses in which law-keeping is necessary to our salvation. Two senses in which it's necessary to our salvation. Here's the first one. First, someone had to keep the law. Someone had to. Adam was commanded to and failed to. Israel was commanded to and failed to. We're commanded to and failed to. So who kept it? Jesus did. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Why did he have to do that? Because someone had to keep God's righteous requirement of the law. He was perfectly righteous and just in our place. If we believe in him, he takes all that is ours, our sin, and we receive all that is his, his righteousness. That's the exchange Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said, God made him who knew no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. So you see, if we are believers, then we're united to Jesus and we're righteous in him. So that's one sense in which law-keeping is necessary to our salvation. It's just not your law-keeping, it's the law-keeping of another. Jesus. There's a second way that law-keeping is necessary to our salvation, and that's this. Law-keeping is necessary to our salvation as a fruit of knowing Jesus. Hear that? As a fruit of knowing him. As a consequence of knowing him. Not as a condition of knowing him. It's not like, well, I'll let you believe and be united to me through faith and be justified as once you meet the condition of keeping the law. That's not the issue. He says, all those who believe and are justified as a consequence of that, you now keep the law. You now bear fruit. When Jesus saved us, he brought us into a covenantal relationship with himself. His spirit dwells in us, and thus he and the Father dwell in us, and thus we're being made into the likeness of our holy God. I don't know if you've ever stopped and considered what Jesus was saying there in John 14, but he drives after telling the apostles that the Trinity will dwell in you, make their home in you. You don't think that's going to change you necessarily? necessarily changes you. 
This is the new covenant promised in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Listen to the promise of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And, and listen, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, listen to what he's going to do, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, when you unite to Christ through faith, you are in the new covenant with him. And one of the truths of the new covenant is that the spirit gives you a new heart and causes you to keep the commandments. It's a necessary consequence or fruit of trusting Christ, of being born again, that you keep his law. This is the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is also picked up in Hebrews 8, but I'm going to read it from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is it? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them. See, in the Mosaic covenant, where did he put the law? On stone tablets. In the new covenant, where does he write it? On your heart. I'll put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, in this sense, law-keeping is necessary to our salvation. There is no such thing as a believer in Jesus who is not in the new covenant, who is not born again by the Spirit of God, who is not being made to be like Jesus in holiness. There are all sorts of people who profess to be believers in Jesus who are not those things. But no such thing as a true believer who has not been born again by the Spirit of God, who is not in the new covenant, and who is not being made to be in the likeness of Jesus in holiness, who has not had the law written on their hearts. Not in such a way that you just know about it, but that you want to keep it, that you're caused to keep his law. That's why John can say what he says in 1 John 2, 4, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So here's the question. That was the first test, or the first heart check to knowing if you're a true believer in Christ, how'd you do? Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? In other words, are you loyal to your king and his law? Do you love the law and keep it? We're not talking about sinless obedience. We're not talking about anything close. We're talking about a general pattern of life. As long as you live in this world as a fallen man, you will be a sinner. That's why we were singing absent from flesh. 
that glorious day that will be absent from the sinful flesh. We're not Gnostics. We don't want to get out of our bodies. We want to get out of the sin principle that rules us often. As long as you live in this world, you'll be a sinner. You'll become, you will be someone who must cling to the fact, as long as you live in this world, you must cling to the fact that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is also your wrath bearer for your sins. However, a real relationship with Jesus in which you are being increasingly transformed by the Spirit into his image day by day is necessary. So my question is, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you someone who walked in here not a believer at all and you need to turn to Jesus and repent of your sins, of yourself, repent of yourself, and trust in him, and be forgiven for your sins, be given new life, have his law written on your heart? Or are you someone who walked in here today thinking, yeah, I've been a Christian all my life, who just found out that you miserably failed the first test, not because you sin, but because no one you know, and if you're honest, looking at yourself in the mirror, would never describe you as a person who their general pattern of their life is someone who delights in God's law and wants to keep it and grow in it, who's constantly known as a repentant person, who tells the truth about themselves and their sin, who's turning from it continuously and growing in godliness. Because if no one would describe you that way, and if you look yourself in the mirror and know you're not that, then you're a false professor. And you need to repent. You need to ask God to give you faith and repentance. You need to ask him to give you a love for Jesus and to trust in him. Believers, I I don't know how how you fared in these heart checks, but I hope your assurance of salvation is not shaken by the condition of your heart. I hope it's not, because John didn't give us these things to shake us out of assurance. He gave them to us to drive into us that we know the right Jesus, to give us certainty, confidence. If it does shake you, then I I beg you to repent. Get on your face and ask Jesus to forgive you and cause you to walk in his light. Beg him to give you a deeper love for and loyalty to him and his royal law. Plead with him to turn your heart from being curved in on yourself, but rather turned out toward him and to others. He will answer those prayers. He will. But as long as you remain in the flesh, you will not be freed completely from the influence of sin in in your life, which is why you find John praying, Maranatha. You know what that means? Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work by your spirit to apply the truth to our own hearts, our own minds, that you would cause us to be honest with ourselves, to not deceive ourselves or lie to ourselves or others or to you, be honest with ourselves. Father, we pray that your spirit would work and apply your word to us. If there are any here who aren't believers, we pray that you would give them life in your son, that they would trust in you and know the forgiveness of their sins. Whether they came in here as denying Christ or they came in here as false professors of Christ, we pray that you would bring them to faith in Christ, that they would believe and know salvation. 
Pray for the rest of us, Father, that you would give us great assurance in knowing that your Spirit is at work in us, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because of the work of your Son, Jesus, and that we would look always and continually to him, knowing that he is our advocate with you. He is Jesus, Messiah, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins. And that if we are in him, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.